is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on this show. And generally it's storytelling, but every once in a while we just goof off. Actually, this isn't goofy at all to us because we're going to be talking about ice, and we talk about things that matter to us every once in a while here. I mean, Hengler, for goodness sakes, has one of our all-time greatest segments, and it was about, well, man wipes. It was about it very was about important stuff. very much important, important stuff. than ice. Much more important than ice. And so for me, ice is an obsession. I like good ice. I like putting everything on ice, milk on ice, ice cold Coke. And I've been getting a hard time from everybody here at the crew because I actually, when I built my new home, I had only one request, a custom ice machine. Nice. And everybody here is treating me like I'm some kind of android or some kind of <laughs> Just some kind of weasel. Well, anything's got to be better than those crescent-shaped ones that come out of the refrigerator that you bought at you know, Home Depot or something, right? Well, because oh, well, they absorb the smell of the broccoli and they <laughs> absorb the smell of the food. And then you put that in a perfectly good, beautiful cold Coca-Cola, and now it smells like broccoli Coke. <laughs> I don't want broccoli Coke. So, so I'm not crazy. The Wall Street Journal <laughs> the other day, and this that's proof that there's a paper. Right. Has on the front page because this is front page news, mm-hmm. Jesse. Sure, you mock me. I'm, I'm, I haven't said anything. No, I know you haven't. I'll get into your <laughs> beer obsessions and and a couple of others too. Well, you'll do a segment on that. And this one was in cocktails. Ice cubes are hot, huh. hot. Craft fans drop spheres and spears favor big squares. By the way, I don't have a big square. Mine are round cubes. Right. I'm in one of those spheres and spears. It's it's parts. unbelievably hard to actually find an ice cube. They're rectangular in shape or the crescent moon shaped or they're sphere shaped. I just want an ice cube. I, yeah. I have a cube bowl, Jesse. I'll bring yeah. you one. It's, it makes like two inch square cubes. But you have to break it out manually, right? And crack the... Yeah, but you have kids. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You do have kids. Built in slaves. Very, very... Stan is always <laughs> on it. He's always thinking about how to amortize those children. I don't want touching my ice cubes, though. That's a good point. <laughs> So here's how, the, here's how the story starts off. The world of high-end cocktails is being stirred. Uh, oh, well. The world of high-end cocktails is being stirred by a development that would have been unthinkable. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Perfect timing. So the world of high-end cocktails is being stirred by a development that would have been unthinkable in years past. Bartenders want to put ice cubes in the drinks. They have tried giant balls of ice or ice in the shape of a diamond or a five-inch spear to the surprise of craft fans who have been loading up drinks with so-called artisanal ice. <laughs> artisanal ice. I love this. However, even restaurants that boast of having an ice program to go with their cocktail program are turning back to the traditional cube. It's all coming back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The fancy cube pants are coming back to the cube. <laughs> And here's a quote. Ice spheres are so seven years ago, says Joseph Ambrose, owner of Favorite Ice Company, a hand-cut cocktail ice distributor in Washington that provides to about 30 bars in the area. We got to get this guy on. Mm -hmm. And I think there's one other person in here that we got to get on, too. We get this ice cube maker, this maestro of ice, and maybe we get some bar owner on as we go down. So it's, again, ice spheres are so seven years ago said Joseph Ambrose, owner of Favorite Ice Company. And it's the two-by-two cube that bars want most often. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The two-by-two cube. Classy, original. All the way back to the basics. Quote, we have drinkers who are really picky about ice, said Drew Hairston, bar manager for Bar Charlie in Washington, D.C., which makes artisanal ice in-house. Ooh, cutting out our friend Joseph Ambrose. We got to get both these guys on together. 
And here's what he says. He says, while some customers like smaller ice cubes because they melt faster, he said, we have many other experienced bourbon drinkers who specifically require the cube. Now, this is interesting. Chuck Avery, a certified sommelier and artisanal ice expert, he says that the cube also looks more aesthetically pleasing compared to the other shapes. Yeah. So it's all about how the drink looks. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And there's one drink, by the way, like many upscale watering holes, Bar Charlie only serves its ice cubes in high-end drinks. These fancy cubes, like their $18 cocktail. <laughs> well, this better be good ice. Wow. At yeah. the $18 It'll cocktail. Like made out of Fiji water or something. <laughs> exactly. It's, it, it's got, uh, let's see. It involves first setting the drink on a piece of wood on fire, then placing the glass over the smoke when the fire is poured and put out. Then the customer then puts the cube in the smoked glass, the smoke that came up from the fire, and then pours the bourbon on top of it. Hmm. 18 bucks. We got to figure, we got to talk to Bar Charlie about this. So one girl says, Susan McCarthy says, if I was on a date, at least the giant ice cube would give us something to talk about. And so we're going to have to hit this segment hard. Uh, in the next couple of days, uh, Stan, we need a call out to, to Bar Charlie. And let me tell you, this guy here, Joseph Ambrose, co-owner of Favorite Ice Company, uh, who, and, and this sommelier, too. I like the idea that there's an actual sommelier and ice man. I mean, it's the ice, resident ice man, and they have their own ice program. So you can buy these things, apparently, or just set them on your countertop. Is that what you have? So you have your own individualized uh, ice maker not coming from the refrigerator. Yeah, that's right. It's like, it's situated next to our little like an bar. Appliance, yeah. Like an appliance, and it's sitting next to the uh, wine cooler, which is generally what people will do, and uh, where, where we pour drinks for folks. So I see you can get them for a couple hundred bucks for like the, the standard issue, but now I'm looking on, on like Google Shopping, yeah. and you can buy the industrial-sized ones that you can get like a, at a, a a hotel? hotel? Yeah. How much are they? Like $2,000. We should get one for the studio. I mean, I know there's only six of us, but imagine if we had our own ice machine. Did you ever notice those things smell just like Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland? I have not noticed that. <laughs> I'll have to take oh, yeah, a whiff. There's a musty. very Yeah, it's like an ozone kind of a smell that, yeah, that comes yeah. out of those things. They say that those things have more bacteria inside the ice machines than actual toilets do. Mm. Well, if we had an ice machine here, I would show you how I do cereal on ice milk. I would oh, show yeah. you how that works, but I would also need, I'd need my cereal, basically Captain Crunch is how you prove it, because Captain Crunch dissolves fast. Gourmet Captain Crunch. So Gourmet Captain Crunch. put ice cubes in milk. That's no, like no. putting ice in beer. It's, it's, it should be a crime. So here's what you do. You take the ice cubes, you put them in a, in a, in a bowl, you pour the milk into a bowl, then you take a separate bowl and you take a colander, you pour the milk back through the ice in the colander, and then you do this several times. And as the milk <laughs> pours over the ice, it gets cold without getting sort of liquidy and ugly. This is why you don't like it. Have you, have you tried freezing milk into ice cubes? Not tried that yet. I have not tried Next that week. yet. We'll try that too. The subject is ice here on Our American Stories. And the story was in the Wall Street Journal, in cocktails, ice cubes are hot. Stay here with Our American Stories. We're ahead of the culture. We're ahead of the Wall Street Journal. And we'll talk to a couple of the folks in this story in the coming days. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our weekly segment with Nate Scott from For the Win. 
USA Today's leading sports site at ftw.usatoday.com. And Nate, we got to talk about the World Series. And we learned that the New York Times revealed that they had a front page ready to announce the loss of the Chicago Cubs. This is so, so mean. <laughs> uh, yeah, after that game seven, I, you know, um, it would have been cool to see this cover because it's beautiful, but I'm just happy for the city of Chicago because I think, I think they might have had to disband the Cubs organization if they blew that game seven. I think you're right. And by the way, the outpouring in Chicago, when I popped on ESPN and it was parade day and then they all got into Grand Park, I'd never seen the masses assembled in Grand Park like that. Well, ever. I mean, it was Obama's inauguration, but this looked actually bigger. It was it was huge. It was so big, um, and and I'm so happy for him. But yeah, this New York Times cover they they dug up a, a Norman Rockwell painting from 1948 in which he had shown the Cubs losing because you know they had a century worth of Cubs losing to pick from, um, and they had painted the faces of Joe Madden and the other Cubs on there. Uh, luckily for Chicago, New York Times didn't have to use it. Now, that is good luck, and maybe that's a memento for someone, and maybe that goes out as a as a souvenir. It gets out and gets you know, printed up the way uh, you know Dewey defeats Truman. That famous headline exactly. sort of was was famous. Hey, some people have gone crazy over there in Chicago, around the country, and some have chosen to celebrate in eh, let's just say some dangerous ways. Nate, talk about that. Yeah, these guys have. Uh... Apparently, Chicago is all in on each other. They believe in each other totally, perhaps stupidly. Um, one of the new celebration techniques that Chicago has stumbled upon, and which we really hope the rest of the country doesn't pick up on, is, is trust falls, um, where fans are falling backwards off of 20-foot-high lampposts or, or uh, you know, stop signs into the arms of, of their awaiting Cubs fans below, which... No major injuries yet, but with the amount of alcohol that I know is flowing in Wrigleyville, I'm, I'm surprised no one got hurt. Yeah, I'm shocked. I mean, a trust fall with a bunch of drunks as well. Not, <laughs> not a real good idea. Hey, by the way, I love what Luke Kerr wrote. He wrote, look, Cubs fans, we get it. We know you're super happy, but please, please stop doing this. It's not funny. It's not cool. It's dangerous. And more than anything else, it's just so stupid. That is pretty stupid. But, you know, what, yeah. what else are they doing out there, Nate? I mean, in the end, is, is this going to spill over into next year? Is all this euphoria going to keep this club together? Or are guys going to just, you know, march off like they so often do now in pro sports? It's one year and out. Well, luckily for the Cubs, they've, they've built a pretty good young core. And the, and the sort of the heart of the team they've got around for a while, uh, that, that young group of, of Rizzo and Chris Bryant and Javi Baez and Addison Russell, those guys are all in their early 20s, and, and, and they've got them locked up for years. Um, the, the big relievers uh, that they had, uh, Earl Des Chapman, I wouldn't be surprised if he goes. So it's not going to be exactly the same team, but these Cubs are built to be good for a long time, so I wouldn't be surprised if they're back right again next year. And what does it say about management, uh, Nate? Talk about that just for a bit, because we know management matters. Yeah, you know, I said Theo Epstein right now goes down as the, the greatest baseball executive of the modern era. I mean, he's got some, some comparison in the long run with Branch Rickey and some other pioneers. But for what he's done for the city of, of Boston and now Chicago, um, where, you know, he, he had a plan both times. He had a philosophy. He knew the players that he wanted, and he executed on it. Um, and to see so many other teams, you know, it's really hard to do. It's easy to say that. 
it's so hard to do that. You can chase big players you think are good or you do something you think will make the fans happy or something. He was very patient. He went out and got a very good group of young players, complimented them with uh, you know veterans who had been there before, won World Series before, and, and found a really group, great group of guys. And uh, I don't know, it just speaks to – you know, it's it's not all luck. If you have a plan and you can execute on it, uh, you can you can change history. Hey, what's happened to this whole Moneyball thing? Um, are the data guys still dominating, or is there some? You know, that's the Michael Lewis book, by the way, for folks who didn't read it, and the movie. Are the data guys yeah. still dominating, or is there now finally some wisdom about a combination of data and chemistry? What's going on in in, in the league, and particularly in Chicago? What do you think? Yeah, you know, Chicago sort of. They they kind of built the team a little bit like uh, he built the field built those Red Sox teams. You know, it, it was sort of a money ball approach. All these hitters on the team, minus a couple, um, are pretty patient at the plate. What I think they're starting to understand better now with data and other things is how fielding comes into play. How speed is actually really important. They they didn't think speed was important for a long time. It's actually really important. Fielding's important. Chemistry's important. You know, they brought in. Some older guys, David Ross uh, was brought in this year kind of to be the backup catcher, but also to be a guy who was, you know, just part of the team to make things great. Um, Jason Hayward is a guy who couldn't hit a ball all postseason, and he was the one when the rain delay happened in the 10th inning gave a speech that round the Cubs up and led them to victory. So I think they're starting to realize that, you know, you got to have the right guys, but the personalities need to be the right uh, right as well for each yeah, other. I think that's right, and I think it's good to see a marriage of both these things. So you always got the data people arguing with the chemistry people, and you know you saw that Clint Eastwood movie, which I think I forget the name of it, something about the curve or something like that. Yeah, but it was a curve. That's right, but it was it was a sort of a rebuttal. It was Eastwood's rebuttal to the data guys in sports and life. I think, basically, let's switch it and pivot to the NFL because uh, you have Richard Sherman talking about. Uh, the NFL and what's wrong. And basically, Nate, uh, he argued that the NFL's ratings are down because it's just not fun anymore. That's not good to hear from a, a star back, a star player like Richard Sherman. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I think there's a lot going on with the NFL. Ratings are down big this year, and I think it's a combination of some things. I think people, you know, don't watch cable like they used to. Other people are cutting the cord. You know, the, the other leagues are getting more popular. I, I do think he's on to something here, though, which the NFL for so long has tried to make everyone be the same and have celebrate touchdowns the same way and wear the same uniforms and not express any individuality that it's becoming sort of a corporate league where you, it's hard to tell the stars apart. You know, it's, it's running backs come in the league. They're gone in two years. They've got a, a few marquee quarterbacks. All those guys are up in their 30s by now. Um and if you've got someone like Richard Sherman saying the league isn't letting us have fun, I mean, could we have a Deion Sanders in the NFL right now? I exactly. don't know. NFL, I think he would be fined every week. I love that he said NFL. You know, I love that you said NFL equals no fun league. Fines for celebrations, yeah. fines for trash talk. Come on, fines for uniform violations. It's just crazy, Nate. It's crazy. And if you look at the NBA, which has just fostered these stars and created these personalities that everyone knows and everyone loves. Um, and to see what the NFL is doing, kind of swinging the opposite way, 
it's hard to argue that the NBA is getting something right that the NFL isn't right no, now. No, look at the difference in the way LeBron James celebrates. He does those like body pumps and those fist bumps. And then you got Steph Curry, and he just uh, he smirks. He barely even smiles. Like he doesn't jump up yeah. and down. He points to the sky, points to his God. He's got his own way of celebrating. And this is what Richard Sur- Sherman actually wrote. I generally don't like to read your, your, your uh, publication and your website's Uh, quotes to you, but I want to read this one. Sherman wrote this, because the league isn't fun anymore, that's why the ratings are down. Every other league, you see the players have a good time. It's a game. This isn't politics. This isn't justice. This is entertainment. They're no longer allowing the players to entertain. They're no longer allowing the players to show any kind of personality, any kind of uniqueness, any individuality, because they want to control the product. They want to control the messaging. My goodness, this guy should be a staff writer, Nate. <laughs> he's, he's great. I mean, he's speaking off the cuff, too. I mean, he, he, he really thought about it a lot, and I think he's got some really great points. You know, I mean, you see some of the receivers on, on other teams running to their sidelines to celebrate because they're hoping they won't get flagged, and the officials are chasing them down the sidelines and flagging them there. And it's yep. like, what are we doing? This is supposed to be fun. You know, touchdown celebrations are a blast. Yeah, remember Chicago? I mean, that they had the whole Chicago shuffle, and we had Willie White Shoes Johnson. Hell, we had Willie White Shoes Namath. I mean, look at the guy who really created all that attention for the NFL. You may not have loved it. Some people thought he was a braggart. Other people thought he was so cool. But everybody was talking about it, and no one was going to say Joe Namath was corporate. Nobody. Exactly. And that's, you know, it, 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 the NFL is... By making it so homogenized, they are limiting discussion and they're limiting argument and they're trying to present this unified front where that's the fun. The fun is arguing. Some people think he's a braggart. Some people think he's cool. That's the best part of sports. So uh, I don't know what the NFL's long-term strategy is on a lot of this stuff. Well, I think they're going to have to do something. And next week we're going to argue about the Golden State Warriors. Get prepared, Nate. You and I are going to go at it. You think the Warriors are just trying to find themselves. I think the Warriors are lost. And I don't think they win, and I don't think they repeat. It'll be a fun week. That's all we'll do next week. Me and you, mano a mano, Nate. Looking forward to it. Same here. Have a great one. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Nate Scott, USA Today's For the Win, ftw.usatoday.com. our American stories and now it's time for our sweet charity segment brought to us by our partners at the philanthropy roundtable the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity protecting philanthropic freedom and assisting givers in achieving their goals and the host of the series is Carl Zinsmeister their head of publications and a modern renaissance man Carl has authored 11 books including two based on his time in Iraq a storytelling cookbook and even a graphic novel published by Marvel Comics. But of course, we know him best by his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy. Take it away, Carl. The Ford Foundation was once described as, quote, 
a large body of money completely surrounded by people who want some. <laughs> it's easy to look at a big pile of silver like the Ford Foundation and think that, you know, that's what American philanthropy is all about. But actually, philanthropy in the U.S. is not just a story of moguls and big foundations. In fact, it's not primarily about wealthy people at all. Take the Gates Foundation. We hear an awful lot about them, and in truth, they do some wonderful things. But folks, keep in mind that Gates gives away about $4 billion annually. Meanwhile, Americans as a whole donate $373 billion every year. That means Gates money is about 1% of our total yearly donations. And the value of our donated time as volunteers is worth about as much as the cash we transfer. So Gates and other big givers are only a small portion of our full charitable pie. Let me give you the hard numbers. This year, only 14% of charitable giving in the U.S. will come from foundations, and only 5% more will come from corporations. The other 81% is given by individuals, and the bulk of that comes from everyday small givers at an annual rate of about $2,500 per household. You multiply that by hundreds of millions of households and you get big bucks. Relatively few people realize that lots and lots of small donors are the philanthropic iceberg that looms beneath the surface, underneath that tip of Rockefellers and Zuckerbergs and Buffets that is so visible, but not the main body. To make sure that this crucial reality about the importance of small donors in our country doesn't get overlooked, I do some extended storytelling in my new Almanac of American Philanthropy about giving by ordinary people in the U.S. Take Gus and Marie Selensky. Gus was a plumber and Marie was a nurse. They lived quietly until a few years ago in a small house in Syracuse, New York. Their one indulgence was weekly square dancing. Other than that, they were savers. And when they died not long ago, this simple couple left more than $3 million to good causes. Ann Scheiber was a shy auditor who retired in 1944 with just $5,000 in the bank. Through frugal living and some brilliant stock picking, she turned this into $22 million by the time she passed away at the age of 101. And she left it all to Yeshiva University so that bright but needy girls could attend college and medical school. Eleanor Sauerwein was hardworking and independent. She painted her own home, kept a vegetable garden, mowed the lawn herself until she was in her 90s to save money. Her financial advisor reported that, quote, her goal for years and years was to amass as much as she could so it would go to the Salvation Army. And when Eleanor died in 2011, she left $1.7 million to the Modesto, California branch of the Salvation Army. I've collected a million stories like these. One favorite involves Albert Lexi, a sweet, mildly disabled man who shined shoes in Pittsburgh for more than 50 years until his recent retirement. Albert made a decision in 1981 to donate every penny of his shoe shining tips to the Free Care Fund of the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, which benefits families who can't afford treatment for their youngsters. Over the years, Lexi handed over more than $200,000 to Children's Hospital. That was about a third of his total earnings over those decades. Here's Albert describing his work and the philanthropic mission he set for himself. I walk around and, and, and shine shoes for uh, all day long and give, give my, and give my tips to Children's Hospital. Impressed by his generosity, some of Albert's friends got together a few years ago to celebrate his efforts. He was characteristically low-key in his remarks to the gathering. 
Just thank you all for coming here, and and I think God's really blessing because today is a beautiful day. The mayor of his hometown put things in perspective. If you just listen to Albert, Albert doesn't want any praise. Albert does what he does because he does it from his heart, and that's what the rest of the world needs to understand. When you do something from your heart, it's a better place. That got a bashful but happy response from Lexi. It's good to be a big bear hero. Now, some people hear this and they say to me, Oh, Carl, those are lovely stories, but nothing large or consequential can ever be accomplished by these little givers. Well, you know what? The very clear answer from American history is that these doubters are wrong. Many remarkable things have been achieved by dispersed giving, which aggregates in formidable ways. If everybody does their little bit, the cumulative result is impressive, as Albert Lexi and lots of other small givers have proven over and over. And what, what a really good report from Carl. Love those stories. It gets at what America is all about. And again, it's the Philanthropy Roundtable. And the book, of course, is the Almanac of American Philanthropy. And now it's time for another edition of Stephen Goldberg's Daydreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams. We've been listening to Goldberg's now for weeks. Because he's not just any dude. He's one of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College. And was the world's foremost expert on patriarchy. He's also a guy who daydreams a lot. By the way, he's also the kind of guy who, as a professor or a teacher, is the kind of guy who he could have taught anything. You would have taken it and it would have been entertaining. Because the guy is just interesting. But before we bring you this daydream, Steve asked that we always read the following disclosure. Quote, the following are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, popping into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. And with that, here's Steve Goldberg's latest, Talentless Daydream. I'm 16 years old and have just received a dozen hard-to-find writing pads you could get only by mail. It turns out that the company had sent me the wrong pads. When I called the company, they said there wasn't, it wasn't worth the expense of returning the pads, and I should just uh, give them to uh, a local house of worship or charity. Now, it happened that by far the closest place to which I could donate the pads was a gigantic Catholic church a block from where I live. Despite the fact that uh, I had always uh, found the church a bit intimidating, I went in and was greeted by a friendly nun at the desk. Um, Never having been inside a Catholic church and unfamiliar with the required protocol, I asked the nun if a Jew was allowed in in the church. (laughs) She laughed and began to laugh and went over to a nearby priest and whispered uh, to him, at which point the priest uh, began to laugh. By this time, I was mortally embarrassed as the priest came over to me and said, Son, let me put it this way. You may not know this, but our Savior, Jesus Christ, was a Jew. Now, what do you think the chances are? Should Jesus knock 
on our door and ask to be let in, we would say, we're, um, we're sorry, Jesus, we, we really would like to let you in. We really would. Um, but, um, you know, you're Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just precious. Stephen Goldberg's Daydreams. We get them intermittently. We don't know when and where and how they'll come, but they come. And something tells me there are many more to come. Thank you, Steve, for the, the well, the talentless daydreams. Keep them coming. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to Steve's daydreams there. And by the way, hope you're, hopefully you're sleepy when you listen to them. More <laughs> after these messages. American Stories, and we're listening to Dissident from Pearl Jam's second album, Versus. And on this day in history, Pearl Jam went number one with this album. Released in October 1993, Versus was one of the most successful sophomore albums in rock history, setting an all-time record for first-week album sales at the time with 950,000 copies sold. It spent five weeks at number one on the Billboard 200s. That's the thing about sophomore albums. They're hard. And there's always a certain amount of pressure on a band. But this group quickly took control of their circumstances and established themselves as an act who did things their own way. After becoming MTV megastars, thanks to the Jeremy video, the band decided to take a step back from the spotlight by not releasing any videos for this album. In fact, despite the huge amount of attention heaped upon them by the press, the group opted to take a low-key approach in an attempt to avoid the inevitable oversaturation. Versus has held the record for five years as a top-selling double album until Garth Brooks's 1998 Double Live. And so that's the company Pearl Jam kept. By the way, there was a different scoring on SoundScan that made Pearl Jam's achievement even greater. We won't bore you with the details, but it's, it's really something what they managed. Second album is, again, where big bands generally make their mark. Others, they got that one great record. The follow-up record, they're gone. Let's get to the song I think most of you know from this, and that's Eddie Vedder and the band's daughter. Mm-hmm. 
restless breakfast table in an otherwise empty team's favorite track on this record where we save for last again we're talking about Pearl Jam's verses and on this day in history it went number one and we love music here on our American stories every kind we've done Miles Davis Dolly Parton Merle Haggard Frank Sinatra uh, it doesn't matter to us music's music and this is grunge this is that Seattle sound that came out in the early 90s and really rocked rock and roll this song elderly woman behind the counter in a small town Recognize your face Haunting, familiar, yeah I can't seem to place it Cannot find the candle of thought To light your name Lifetimes are catching up with me I'd seen the place, but no one's ever taken me. Hearts and thoughts, they fade, fade away. Hearts and thoughts, they fade, fade On this day in history, Pearl Jam went number one with Versus and a new record of highest album sales in one week. And now we pivot to a piece that we just had to do. This is Our American Stories producer Jesse Edwards putting together a piece about five different Hollywood actors who tried to become professional musicians and failed miserably as seen in Cracked Magazine. Here's Jesse. There's a curious tradition in Hollywood where every so often an actor gets into their head that maybe they can cross boundaries and become a singer as well. Think of it like entertainment rabies. It's rare, but not unheard of. It strikes without warning, and the victim will most likely end up dying a horrible, horrible death. It's not that actors can't sing or vice versa. It's just that most can't and shouldn't. While Dolly Parton and Ice-T might thrive in both forums, others fail so miserably someone should just smack them on the nose and say no. Our first example is David Hasselhoff with his album Night Rocker. City lights, they're coming on one by one. So are the stars in the sky. 
Hasselhoff was a full-grown adult man in his 30s when he dropped Night Rocker on us like a stray dog dropping an unusually shiny turd near your shoe. The title track, Night Rocker, is not about low-light rocking chair shenanigans. Instead, it's about how the Hoff plans to seduce you with his rock and roll badassery. Next up at number four is Joe Pesci. Yes, Vincent LaGuardia Gambini sings Just For You. What a treat. See Trees of green Red roses too Society as a whole has been complicit in the lie that Joe Pesci is a tough guy since Martin Scorsese cast him in the 1990s Goodfellas. Since that time, he's repeatedly appeared in intimidating roles despite being roughly the size of a football. Wow. What a beautiful world. Pesci actually is or was a singer and released an entire album before his acting career took off. This ain't such a bad world. You know that? Next up at number three is Steven Seagal's Songs from the Crystal Cave. If you sing with me, we can fill the world with harmony. This multi-genre album tries to present pop, hip-hop, Jamaican dance hall, soft rock, and poetic stylings of a glue-huffing Muppet. You gotta let the music be the remedy. Number two is Mr. T with Mr. T's Commandments. Mr. T's rap skills make Vanilla Ice look like a sci-fi hybrid of Tupac, Eminem, and Biggie. Mr. T's Don't Talk to Strangers is probably the album's most egregious example of a tough guy from yesteryear destroying his own image for the sake of pandering to children. What in God's holy name are you blathering about? To pick you up. William Shatner could rap a better album than this after six whiskeys and a wisdom tooth removal. And number one of our top five actors who tried singing and failed miserably is Edward Furlong with his album Hold On Tight. Who the hell is Edward Furlong? Well, you'll be forgiven if you weren't aware that the kid from Terminator 2 had a music career back in the day because it's likely the CDC took possession of every copy of the album and burned it. These are abrasively bad lyrics, like musical sandpaper doused in Tabasco and rubbed in your eyes. Keep in mind, this album was released in 1992 to capitalize on Furlong's Terminator fame, which means it was recorded in his mid-teens. Every song is about his undying love for some nameless girl who's in for an unfortunate romance. Except one, Furlong's aggressively terrible cover of The Doors, People Are Strange. Ooh, enjoy this little gem. And that's five actors who tried singing and failed miserably. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Thanks for that, Jesse. Sure. Oh, my goodness. Here's dirt in your ear. Thanks. <laughs> Joe Pesci. Oh, my goodness. I love David Hasselhoff's song, by the way. Well, it's huge in Germany. I am the night rocker. <laughs> I want to rock you with my song. 
That's really something. Uh, so bad it's good. Have you ever seen the Hoff's house? No. Oh, you go in there and he talks about the Hoff and everything on the wall is of the Hoff. There's pictures of the Hoff. There's, there's statues of the Hoff. It's the most bizarre thing in the world. Joke's on us, I guess. It sure is. Hoff, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the show. You could sing for us. I'd love to hear Night Rocker myself. <laughs> That's my favorite. Let's go out with a little bit more of, who's this, Jesse? The kid from Terminator 2. Oh, that kid. This is Lee Habib, <laughs> and this is Strange. This is Our American Story. stories and for the hour the life of Billy Graham born on this day in history in 1918 and still alive today 98 years old and what a life born in North Carolina the small dairy farm he's preached to over 215 million people in person in over 185 countries and territories and It's just pretty simple. There's been no more important man of faith in the 20th century than Billy Graham. I don't think you'll get any any argument with that. And I think that Pope John Paul II would have said the same as Graham impacted the way he actually approached audiences. A lot of people called Pope John Paul II the evangelical pope. And he was an advisor to all presidents, Republican and Democrat, And, my goodness, the publishing, the books, and the number of people he reached through his television ministry topped out at $2.2 billion. But to truly understand this man's life is to hear his sermons, or to hear at least a sermon in honor of Billy Graham, because that was his great talent, communicating the Word of God through sermons to mass numbers of people at places like Dodger Stadium and Madison Square Garden and Yankee Stadium. This guy did not mess around. And at a time when everybody would have said, you're going to fill Yankee Stadium in the 1950s? You're crazy. Started his first sort of tent parade in 1949. By the way, in Los Angeles, at the very first series of revivals that he ever conducted, a man named Louis Zamperini walked in. We're going to get to that later, because Louis Zamperini was saved there, and thus we have the book Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. And without Billy Graham, the book would have been called Broken, and it wouldn't have been interesting. What unbroke Louis Zamperini was that Billy Graham crusade, and it had unbroken his wife just a few days before. And that's the only reason she didn't divorce him. She said, I have got to forgive you. I'm sticking with you, but I need something from you. Louie, I need you to go and see Billy Graham too. 
Again, we're going to get to that story in a bit. But as I promised you, a Billy Graham sermon. And after quoting some scripture in this classic, this classic sermon, The Value of a Soul, he read this scripture, and it's from Mark, and it's Mark 35 through 38. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? And from there, Graham describes the soul that lives in your body. Now, the Bible teaches that you have a body. But living down inside of your body is your soul or your spirit. I'm not going to try to distinguish tonight because that's a technical theological discussion between soul and spirit. I'm going to use them interchangeably. Your soul is that part of you made in the image of God that lives inside of you and that's the eternal part of you. That's the important part of you. That's the real you. That's the part of you that will be living a thousand years from now, either in heaven or hell. The real you, your body will be in the grave until the resurrection. Jesus said, one soul is worth the whole world. You may gain the whole world and awaken one morning to find that you've missed the most important thing in all of life. Why is it so valuable? Why is your soul so valuable? First, it's valuable because it is eternal. The body is a beautiful structure, but it is matter. No matter how strong, it will die. It's appointed unto man once to die. You're going to die. Your body is going to go to the grave unless you're alive when Christ comes back. Death is man's greatest impersonal enemy, according to 1 Corinthians 15. So many of the great actors and actresses we've seen on television are already dead. I think of Donna Reed. My wife and I were friends of Donna Reed. Starring last year in Dallas, now she's dead. A Rock Hudson, acting on the screen, so handsome, dead. And you could name one after another, dead. Fame, fortune, cannot keep away death. Howard Hughes was the richest man possibly in the United States when he died, but he died. A horrible death, miserable life toward the end of his life. So many people like that. And somehow they think they're going to live forever. And listen to the voice, listen to the cadence. And he's talking to everybody. Look, whether you're a Christian or not, and we celebrate every kind of life here on Our American Stories. And when we dig in, we dig in all the way. You're not going to get watered-down versions of any life here whether it's Kirk Cobain's, the lead singer of Nirvana, or it's Billy Graham or Frank Sinatra. And that's why we're playing you this sermon, and that's why we're starting with, well, one of the most important chapters he thought there was in the Bible and verses. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from the value of the soul sermon, one of his favorites. It was at the Washington Convention Center. 
in front of the masses. And look at how simply he spoke. And he addressed just questions we all wonder about. Believers, non-believers, what are we? Are we a pile of membranes? What happens when we die? Oh my goodness. We should ask these questions more often. And I think now more than ever in an age of Twitter, instant feedback, instant everything, we need Billy Graham more than ever. And these questions. This is Our American Stories, the life of Billy Graham for the hour, born on this day in history in 1918. stories the life of Billy Graham born on this day in history in 1918 by the way he launched the first Los Angeles crusade in 1949 and extended it from the original three weeks to eight overflow crowds many of his subsequent early crusades were similarly extended including one in London that lasted 12 weeks and a New York City crusade in Madison Square Garden in 57 that ran nightly for 16 weeks. That's just crazy. We think it's unbelievable that Billy Joel sells out, sells out the garden once a month for a few years. And again, this is 1957 when articles were running in Time Magazine, Is God Dead? And by the way, the reason for that is Americans and the world had witnessed 60 million people dying in world conflagration. And a lot of people lost faith. Man's inhumanity to man never on higher display than World War II. So let's go back to that that sermon, The Value of a Soul. Graham goes on to talk about how young people think they're immortal. You tell young people that life is short and they sort of smile and say yes, but I've got at least 30 or 40 years ahead. Let me tell you, it goes just like that. I can tell you, somebody asked me on one of my birthdays, I'm not going to tell you which one. They said, when you get, when you were 65 way back there, what was your greatest surprise in life? I said, the brevity of life. That's the greatest surprise of my life is how brief it is. It's gone. I feel like a boy. Sometimes I feel like I'm 18. Again, I feel my real age. But it passes so fast. And then the soul, just as this body has various members like hands and nose and ears and eyes, feet, so the soul has its various faculties and attributes. First, there's understanding, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. Toynbee said man by his knowledge has brought himself to total annihilation. Yes, we can have knowledge, but we don't have the wisdom to control our technology. But wisdom and knowledge are a part of our soul 
and judgment which weighs and determines and makes judgments every day in our lives or your will which chooses or rejects the things brought before it or your affections which cause you to fear or to love memory which is the mental capacity for storing up our knowledge of ideas and events conscience which is the monitor of the soul judges and pronounces verdicts upon all that we do or say all of that is a part of our soul that'll live forever Graham then talks about how science doesn't always teach about what is good for the soul now science producing living cells talks of protoplasm protoplasm by themselves cannot smile in the midst of pain nor can protoplasms love the unlovely, nor generate high hope in times of disaster. They cannot contemplate God. There's something beyond science, and the scientists know it. The Bible calls it soul. What is it when a person dies? The body's there, the organs are there, but something has gone out of the body. The soul, the spirit, has gone out of the body. Where has it gone? Job says, but there's a spirit in man. And in Ecclesiastes it says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto the God who gave it. Now which do you care for if you're a parent? A child's clothes or the child? A servant says, here are the clothes, they're neat and clean, but the child got lost. What would you think of that? And that's what we say. We've taken care of our body, Lord. Here's my body. I didn't neglect it. I took exercises, all those exercises on TV that Jane Fonda has or somebody else has got. I did all those things. I jogged regularly. I ate the proper foods and boy did I take the vitamins and the minerals and packages of them whole fistfuls a day and I went to see the doctor regularly I went to see the dentist every six months my body's in good shape until it died and Lord I took care of it but I neglected my soul I didn't feed the soul I didn't give any vitamins to the soul. I never read the scriptures, your word. I never spent any time talking to you and developing myself spiritually. I didn't obey you when you told me to love my neighbor. I didn't obey you when you talked about that neighbor down the street that was hungry or that neighbor that was in need of a friend that was lonely. I just didn't have time for things like that, but Lord, I really took care of the body. And here's how Graham closes things out. Now, what do you think the Lord is going to do? You see, the body is the house and the soul is the tenant. And it's eternal. You can't be unborn. You were born to live forever. And you cannot be unborn. You cannot stop the process. You can change the direction of your life. Jesus said there are two roads in life, a broad road and a narrow road. The broad road leads to destruction and the narrow road leads to eternal life. And you're on one or the other tonight. Every person here tonight is on one of those roads. 
you can change roads. But you cannot change the fact that you're a living soul and that you're going to live somewhere forever. That's a sobering thought. That is a sobering thought. And this is as relevant today as it was then, as it was in the first century. And these are eternal questions. And that's why we're celebrating the life of Billy Graham. Because nobody pondered them better and nobody took them to the culture better. What Graham was so good at doing was sitting down with the stars of the day, loving on them, sharing, showing goodwill. Here he is on the Woody Allen show. This is before Woody Allen was to become this famous director. At the time, he had been a stand-up. His stand-up career had taken him to this sort of sit-down chat show, a little bit like the Johnny Carson show. Woody Allen once had Billy Graham on his TV show back in 69. Here's Woody's introduction. My next guest is a, um, is a very charming and uh, provocative gentleman. Um, he, uh, whether you agree with his point of view or not on things, uh, he's always extremely interesting to, um, to talk to. I, I don't agree with him on a great many subjects. There are a few that we do agree on. Um, but uh, he certainly is the best in the world at what he does. And uh, Mr. Billy Graham... Very nice to be with you, Woody, and I'd like to say that there's some things I don't agree with you on. <laughs> I know, but it's a question of which one of us will be converted by the time. <laughs> I, I hope I can convert you to um, agnosticism by the time the show is over. Well, I've had a lot of people try, and uh, the more they try, the firmer I get uh, in my conviction. And listen to the play. At one point, someone in the audience asks Woody a question that Billy Graham answers for him. Woody, do you think that you could ever make a good minister? <laughs> I'd like to answer that. Sure. I think yes. Definitely. You think I have the traits of a minister? I think you do, because you see, some of the greatest ministers of history have been some of the greatest sinners of history. Well, you have this terrific mind, you have this ability to communicate, God could use you. Really? That's like getting into the army or something. <laughs> No, it'd be a great experience. Yeah, would I have to wear one of those dark coats and oh, a white no, color? Oh, no, no, like no. You don't see like mine, do you? No, you, you, no, that's right, but you dress very conservatively. Well, that was because uh, uh, I was on a previous show early, and this is the way I had to dress on that particular show, and I didn't have time to change before I came over here to the studio. Do you think that I could... I would like to have worn a very loud coat for, Some... for this occasion. Yeah, something casual and <laughs> devil may care if you'll excuse me. Well, this is rather... <laughs> Something wild, like a blue coat or something like that. Right? <laughs> yes, something really crazy, like a blue coat. <laughs> Thank you for coming here and uh, and doing this with me. And and you're always, you know, a treat to talk to. And um, I hope I haven't provoked you or, or you know, alienated you in any way. Oh no, you know, no, uh, I've enjoyed it very much. And I uh, hope that we can do a repeat sometime. We've had a marvelous audience and some wonderful questions and I've thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, I want to say God bless you well thank you and the best thank to you Woody. and that is everything you need to know about Billy Graham going right into the pit with someone he disagrees with taking a few jokes throwing a few back love always always from Billy Graham love born on this day in history 
Billy Graham. The city of Los Angeles, California, has grown to such proportions that it covers many square miles between the Sierra Madre Mountains and the Pacific Ocean. In this area, four million men, women, and children live going to and fro, seeking, reaching, waiting. From Minneapolis comes the young evangelist Billy Graham and song leader Cliff Barrows, his wife, Billy Barrows, and Beverly Shea, the gospel singer, to cooperate with Christ for Greater Los Angeles in a great revival campaign. This is Our American Stories, and that's some newsreel from way back when. And Billy Graham began, well, almost everything back in that year. That's when the revivals began. And that brings us to a couple of stories we're going to bring to you that the mainstream culture has not, and that is the mainstream media. And the two stories we're going to discuss here are the stories of Louis Zamperini and the story of Johnny Cash. And Zamperini was at that 1949 revival while his wife had gone first. Nine years later, after having given himself to Christ at that Billy Graham revival, well, let's take a listen to Billy Graham introducing Zamperini in San Francisco in 1958 to another large crowd at Candlestick Park. Maybe many of you remember the headlines in 1936, some of you older people do, because Louis Zamberini was representing the United States in the World Olympics in Berlin. He was the great Olympic miler, and he was the man that climbed up the rice stock and pulled Hitler's flag right down from the top. And the whole world gasped, and it became an international incident. During the war, Louis Zamberini was an American war hero. He was 47 days on a life raft floating around in the Pacific. And he began to drink when he came home, and he was confused and frustrated and mixed up in his life. And he too wandered into that tent on Washington and Hill in Los Angeles and found Christ as his Savior. And tonight, he is the director of the Victory Boys Camp for Juvenile Delinquents in Los Angeles giving his full life now to try to rehabilitate juvenile delinquents and lead them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lewis, we're delighted to have you with us tonight. Thank you, Billy. It was after the war and with about $10,000 in back pay from two and a half years in prison camp and also uh, collecting my life insurance for being dead, (laughs) I became uh, extremely... Uh, selfish, cynical, and greedy until the uh, wind was finally let out of my sails. I lost everything that I possessed outside of my wife and little girl. And it was then that my wife was able to persuade me into going down to that meeting at Washington and Hill Street in Los Angeles where I heard the gospel from Billy Graham's lips. And there as I sat in the meeting, I heard... Billy Graham, when he stated that God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, could forgive me for my sins, and that if I put my trust in him, I could have eternal life. And so I went forward in that meeting, asked God to forgive me for not having kept many promises I made on the raft, 
I acknowledge that God that I was a sinner. I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into my heart and save me, and of course he did. Since then I have had an unquenchable joy of working with these uh, wayward boys and uh, also preaching to them the same gospel that I heard nine years ago. Thank you very much. And many years later, uh, Zamperini was interviewed. This is after Laura Hillenbrand had written her remarkable book. Actually, before Angelina Jolie did her movie, which somehow left Billy Graham and Jesus Christ out of the movie. What was in that movie, though, and was in Lauren Hillenbrand's book, was the torture that Zamperini faced from a guy named The Bird. That was his nickname, The Bird. And he was brutal. He was brutal to Louis. And the beautiful part of the book is that, well, Louis Zamperini went to The Bird's house in Japan, tried to get in touch with him to forgive him. The Bird wouldn't see him. But it didn't matter. Louis still forgave him because that's what Christians are supposed to do. Here is Louis Zamperini sharing his journey after the war and after that prison camp experience with the bird. He was back home, but all was not well. Now I got married. I have a little girl, and I'm still suffering nightmares, waking up uh, screaming, uh, strangling the, the bird. And one night I accidentally strangled my wife in my dreams, and she got scared. I drank. Uh, I just figured the more I drank, the, the, the better I'd sleep at night. So I was out every night drunk. My wife refused to go with me. And uh, she decided on a divorce and had every right for a divorce. And then somebody had talked her into going to hear a, a new evangelist, a young evangelist called Billy Graham. I ask you tonight, are you prepared to meet God? Are you prepared to meet God the moment you die? She said, and because of my conversion, Louis, I'm not going to get a divorce. Boy, I was happy. Then she and her newly found Christian friends were all over me. And I avoided him like a plague. She talks about one person only, the person of Jesus Christ, for 30 minutes. And, uh, you know, he read the scriptures, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, I knew I was a sinner, but I didn't like the idea of someone else reminding me, you know. Well, if anybody had ever asked me if I believed that Christ was the Son of God, I would have said, yes, all my life I believed it. But the heart, no. I never. I knew somehow if I believed it in my heart, my life would have been different. So I knew I didn't possess the Savior. And uh, But I still didn't want to do it. And I think the best description of that is, the Bible says that men prefer darkness rather than light. And here I was preferring my rotten life to, to, to the light. And then I started having a flashback to the life raft and prison camp. All those thousands and thousands of prayers, God, spare my life through the war and I'll seek you and serve you. And I kept thinking, I came back from the war alive and I never even thought about those prayers. Never even tried to keep one prayer. Zamperini decided to convert to Christianity and that led him down a path towards forgiveness and peace. I got off of my knees. Somehow I knew I was still getting drunk. I knew it. I also knew that I forgave all of my guards, including the bird. I knew it. And I think proof of that is I had nightmares every night about the bird since the war and after the war. And the night I made my decision for Christ, I haven't had a nightmare since. 1949 till now. And that is some kind of a miracle. 
I believe it with all my heart that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to His purpose. Christ told us in the Scriptures, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He that cometh to me, I will know I cast out. Christ is the way to God. He's the way, He's the truth. People are always seeking truth. Well, the truth is Christ. And He's the life. But I think our eternal life starts now by faith in Jesus Christ. And so that is the strength we live by, and death no longer has a sting, not to the Christian. Not quite sure how Angelina Jolie could have dropped that out of the movie. That was her decision. But that's why we do this show. And Billy Graham's life deserves an hour. And when you talk about Billy Graham, you've got to talk about Jesus Christ. And Louis Zamperini's talking about Jesus Christ. And that's what he believed in. And again, it's almost a crime. It should almost be a crime to, when making a movie about a person like this, to leave that out because you don't believe it. And that's why Angelina Jolie did that. And shame on her. Read Unbroken, though. Forget the movie. That movie, should, again, should be called Broken. Because what unbroke Louis Zamperini was Billy Graham. And on this day in history, Billy Graham was born. And that's why we're celebrating his life. We're going to hear about Johnny Cash's life in the next segment. We're going to hear from a TED conference as well. And from Pat Williams, our resident leadership writer, who has some interesting things to say about Billy Graham on segregation and what he did as a young pastor and minister to fight the forces of segregation. And he was a man who was born in North Carolina. This was no easy task. The life of Billy Graham. More after these messages. Decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Johnny Cash as we celebrate the life of Billy Graham, born on this day in history. In 1918, as always, are this days in history brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College, where you you can go to learn all the good things in life, from philosophy to art to science to faith and religion and the founding fathers and the Constitution. It's all there. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out all their great courses. We bumped in with Johnny Cash because, like Louis Zamperini, Johnny Cash was deeply impacted by the life of Billy Graham. Somehow that was left out of the movie. And that's a whole other show we'll do. But Billy invited Johnny on many of his, many of his crusades. And here's Johnny Cash in his home state of Arkansas at War Memorial Stadium in front of 50 or so thousand people sharing some very personal dimensions and aspects of his spiritual life. Arkansas's native son, Johnny Cash, 
was given a warm reception as he stepped onto the platform at Little Rock's War Memorial Stadium. I've been told to say, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. <laughs> hello, my kinfolks. I'm glad to see you. What a wonderful thrill for me to be back in Arkansas. I think I'm half, akin to half the people here tonight, and I like Arkansas so much I'm going to claim kin of the other half. Last Christmas, I got a Christmas present from Billy Graham. Ruth and Billy Graham sent us a 10-pound box of popcorn. Now, that's a lot of popcorn, 10 pounds of popcorn. Three flavors, you know, in sections. And I had that popcorn opened in my office, and my brother came in. He said, where'd all the popcorn come from? And I said, Billy Graham sent it to me. And he said, oh, really? I got to have some of that. And he got a double handful. And I watched him for a minute, and I started laughing. I said, you know, you can't get to heaven eating Billy Graham's popcorn. <laughs> well, that has, uh, I've thought of that so many times since then, and that has been like a, a parable for me. And it really struck a serious note for me. For 35 years, I've been a professional entertainer. My personal life and personal problems have been widely publicized. There have been things said about me that made people ask, is Johnny Cash really a Christian? Well, I take great comfort in the words of the Apostle Paul who said, what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, I do. And he said, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. But who, he asked, will deliver me from this body of death? And he answers for himself and for me through Jesus Christ the Lord. I'm living through the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in him. He is Lord, and I love him. Still believing is not enough. James said that even demons believe, and faith without works is dead. I spend a lot of my time working with, working with drug addicts and alcoholics, and only someone who has had such a problem can have complete love and compassion and understanding for such people. I love drug addicts, and I love alcoholics. And when Jesus said that he was sent to heal the brokenhearted and preach deliverance to the captives, I believe these are some of the people he was talking about. If some lost, lonely person somewhere out there in a dirty bed in a dark room can see the light of Jesus Christ in me, then that is my reward. My faith is alive and working. And that's not just eating Billy Graham's popcorn. How do you leave something out of walk the line like that? I just don't understand it, actually. You know, a man called Cash. We were all drawn to him because of a man called Christ. Oops, forgot that. Shame on the producers and directors of Walk the Line, which was otherwise a very good film, but for that minor omission, which was deliberate. And again, that's why we do what we do here on Our American Stories. We sometimes have to tell you the rest of the story. And what a life Cash led and to the end writing about the thing he cared about most, God, and those that were 
most in need and most worthy of our help. The poor, the afflicted, the drug addict, the inmate. That's what Cash wrote about, the damned. And Billy Graham was one of the people who truly inspired him. And by the way, Billy Graham's desire to meet with the secular world and, and get folks to know Christ, well, it knew no ends and no boundaries. In 1998, Billy Graham sat down with Ted in one of those intellectual TED Talks that's driven mostly by secular audiences and by science, and now lately by just, I think it's just devolved into stories about human sexuality, global warming. It's become very, very political. But in 1998, Graham decides to go on TED. And in this introduction, Graham does what he always does, makes people comfortable by cracking some jokes. Some of you may be wondering why they have a speaker from the field of religion. But some years ago, I was on an elevator in Philadelphia coming down. I was to address a conference at a hotel. And on that elevator, a man said, I hear Billy Graham is staying in this hotel. And another man looked in my direction and said, yes, there he is. He's on this elevator with us. And this man looked me up and down for about 10 seconds. And he said, my, what an anticlimax. <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope that you won't feel that these few moments with me is, not a, is an anticlimax. And then Graham goes on to talk about technology. And he says, it isn't evil, but man yearns for something more than technology can provide. The British philosopher Bertrand Russell was not a religious man. But he said, it's in our hearts that the evil lies. And it's from our hearts that it must be plucked out. Albert Einstein, I was just talking to someone when I was speaking at Princeton, and I met Mr. Einstein. He didn't have a doctor's degree because he said nobody was qualified to give him one. <laughs> but he made this statement. He said, it's easier to denature plutonium than to denature the evil spirit of man. And many of you, I'm sure, have thought about that and puzzled over it. You've seen people take beneficial technological advances, such as the Internet we've heard about tonight, and twist them into something corrupting. You've seen brilliant people devise computer viruses that bring down whole systems. The Oklahoma City bombing was simple technology, horribly used. The problem is not technology. The problem is the person or persons using it. King David said that he knew the depths of his own soul. He couldn't free himself from personal problems and personal evils that included murder and adultery. Yet King David sought God's forgiveness and said, You can restore my soul. You see, the Bible teaches that we're more than a body and a mind. We are a soul. And there's something inside of us that is beyond our understanding. That's the part of us that yearns for God or something more than we find in technology. Ted, audiences have never heard that message before, not from someone like Billy Graham. I want to close off 
with Pat Williams' book, 21 Great Leaders, because I think this may be the best tribute of them all. During his 1953 crusade in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Graham went into the arena hours before the first meeting and personally took down the ropes separating the white and black sections. The head usher of the event resigned in protest, and other segregationists there were enraged. But Billy Graham stuck to his principles. At the Nashville Crusade in 1954, Graham told a mostly white audience, We have been proud as a race. We have been proud and thought we were better than any other race, any other people. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to stumble into hell because of our pride. Billy had been invited to preach in South Africa for years too, but he kept saying no until his conditions were met. He wouldn't agree to preach in South Africa until he was assured that the meetings would be racially integrated. South African campaign showed blacks and whites what their world would become if apartheid were ended. Christianity is not a white man's religion, he told the crowd, and don't let anybody ever tell you that it's white or black. Christ belongs to all the people. And so we close out our hour celebration of Billy Graham with Johnny Cash's last recording, a song that's secular that he turned into a sacred one. The first time Ever I saw your face I thought the sun The life of Billy Graham, born on this day in history in 1918. This is our American Stories. In your eyes And the moon and the stars Were the gifts you gave